Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kremlin File. This week, we decided to uh, break away from our um, what we were going to be doing. And we're going to be speaking with uh, retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who served in the U.S. Army for over 38 years. His last assignment was the commander of the U.S. Army Europe from 2014 to 2017. And during his command, he was responsible for more than 30,000 U.S. soldiers and regularly exercised alongside NATO forces against conventional and hybrid threats. Olga, let's talk about what is happening right now. Can you give us the breakdown? And also just to add, he is also currently the Pershing chair um, at SIPA. That's right. Um, So we are having this emergency episode because of what's unfolding on uh, the border between Belarus and EU. People are focused mainly on Poland, but it's also happening in Lithuania. Um, And basically, you know, a lot of... It's finally getting media coverage. That's right. not the best coverage, but no. it's finally getting no. uh, media coverage. And basically what's been happening since the summer is that uh, Lukashenko, uh, who's a proxy of Putin, has been weaponizing migrants, flying them from several countries in the Middle East Um into Belarus and then busing them to the border to shove them across into EU borders. The Polish defense ministry sharing this video on Twitter today, showing it says the Belarusian side firing a warning shot to intimidate the migrants, an attempt to herd them toward Poland. Poland, which has hostile relations with Belarus and supported sanctions against the country, accuses Belarus of deliberately driving migrants toward Poland as payback. It's a cruel tactic, as migrant families, many traveling with young children, are huddling together in freezing conditions. This is happening at the same time as uh, Russia has been building up military on Ukraine's border, which is a continuation, basically, of what they started in the spring. Mm -hmm. And now they are ramping up their efforts causing alarm with U.S. and Europe that, you know, an invasion of Ukraine is imminent. And, of course, we also have the energy crisis happening by Russia, the engineered um, energy crisis happening by Russia in Europe right when Europe is about to go into winter. So we decided to do this episode with General Hodges to Mm -hmm. help us break everything down, what we can expect to happen and what U.S. and Europe should do. That's right. And there's no one better, I don't think, right, that could help us understand everything, also what NATO is all about, and what can be done in this situation, what should be done in this situation. So I think without any further ado, let's welcome General Hodges to the pod. Hello, General. How are you today? Hey, guys. Great. And uh, greetings from Frankfurt, Germany. Oh, great. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yes, we're truly honored, especially today and in this period, because tensions are really, really running high. We thank you for making the time to come and talk to us today. So I think we should maybe start off with a little bit of background uh, on NATO. 
because I think a lot of people would like just a little more knowing what it does. Uh, can you tell us exactly what is NATO's mission and uh, specifically also about a little on Article 5, because this gets mentioned quite often. And I think, right, it would be great to talk about something like that. And then the importance of the alliance itself, because I don't think a lot of people realize how important it is, right, for our, for our protection, for our security. Right. So NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was created back in 1949 uh, from the ashes of the Second World War in Europe. And uh, it started off with 12 member nations. Of course, the United States was one of the charter members. Uh, it has grown since then to 30 members with other countries still in a queue wanting to join the alliance. Uh, the alliance, like any uh, international organization and uh, the nature of coalitions, is imperfect but it exists for the collective defense of all of its members. That's, that's what makes it unique is this commitment to each other for collective defense. The treaty that created NATO is called the Washington Treaty, and it has several articles in it, obviously. Article 5, the one you asked about, is the article that's the most well-known, and this is the one that says an armed attack on one shall be considered an armed attack on all. And in fact, Article 5 has only been invoked once in the history of our great alliance, and that was after the United States was attacked on 9-11. It has never been invoked before, but it is the, the, uh, the promise of that commitment to each other, which is and the, and, the, and the foundation of shared values, which is kind of the, the strength of our alliance, this cohesion, yeah. so that adversaries don't want to take on 30 nations, the combined populations, economies, and militaries of 30 nations. And that's why protecting that cohesion uh, ultimately is, is the most important guarantee for the security of all of us. Yeah, yeah. Thank In you. Fact, yes. Um, General Hodges, over the years, we have seen documented reports of Russian espionage missions against NATO Cyber attacks on NATO soldiers. I remember reading a few years ago, they were hacking cell phones and, you know, and, and trying to disable communications and numerous cyber attacks. Can you discuss the reasons for Russia's attacks and their aggressive behavior against NATO and how well prepared is NATO to deal with Russia? Mm. Well, look, I, I think it's important that we have a clear-eyed view of the Kremlin and, and what does motivate the Kremlin and, and why is there this constant um, source of, of friction and aggressive behavior. Uh, I think that Russia is a great country. It's a, it's a nation with uh, limitless resources, uh, important geography, uh, incredible history, but the Russian people have been betrayed by their government for centuries, whether it was under the czar, uh, under the Soviets, and now under the Putin regime, where a very small number of people benefit immensely from wealth, while the average Russian, of course, does not benefit from this. But the, the, the difficult situation, domestic situation that exists in Russia, where unless you live in St. Petersburg or Moscow or one or two other major cities, you're not benefiting from the potential wealth that Russia has. Um, the Kremlin needs to generate a, uh, an external threat. 
And so a lot of what happens is uh, a result um, is a result of this need for um, external threat to mollify uh, a domestic population. But also, I think to be fair, um, there is a, a paranoia that that Russia has that Russians have about invasion that goes back many centuries. And so um, each government, each regime uh, in the Kremlin has sought to dominate, control the um, its periphery, which is why um, the Kremlin does what it can to uh, make sure that Belarus uh, can never integrate to the West, why they keep Lukashenko and his regime propped up, why they continue to uh, kill Ukrainian soldiers almost every week. Uh, and they illegally occupied Crimea. Uh, and of course, they occupy still 20% of Georgia. This is all about keeping its frontier from becoming too Western. They don't want their own population to see how life gets so much better if you become part of the EU, if you join NATO, if you have a Western orientation. So last point. I'd make in this to this question is I believe that the Kremlin is always at war, not hmm. always in the kinetic sense that, you know, that, that, that most of us would think about with weapons and so on. But the, the, the mental state is constantly at war and, and they use everything on the spectrum from disinformation, cyber attacks, turning the gas on and off. Uh, large uh, exercises that always end with a nuclear scenario and everything in between. This mm. this is the process by which they keep pressure on uh, Ukraine in particular um, in order to present Ukraine to the West as a failed state that could never integrate effectively well, with the West. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, we're going to be getting into Ukraine and Belarus uh, let's say a little, no, into a lot, a lot of detail. Olga's got some great questions for you uh, for, you know, that portion there. Um, and you also mentioned NATO as well. Okay. And one of the questions that I have is that in early October, there were eight Russian operatives uh, who were under diplomatic cover and they were expelled, right, from NATO. This was in the news it was covered, you no, know, uh, when it happened, and they were they were expelled for their actual espionage operations, and then shortly yep. after that, Russia announced that they were suspending their membership in NATO. So, what I wanted to ask was, you know, what are the consequences, if there are any, of Russia pulling out of NATO? Okay, so uh, this is an important point. First of all, nobody should be surprised that any Russians that were invited as guests uh, at NATO as, a, mm -hmm. as part of the Russian delegation, nobody should be surprised that uh, some, if not all of them, were involved in some sort of espionage. Now, to be fair, of course, all of us are using espionage against all of our potential adversaries to try and understand uh, what's going on. That's that, that's not a surprise. But And so I wasn't surprised. Uh, to learn that I think eight out of the 19 uh, Russians who were part of the Russian delegation there would be um, ex um, doing this. 
the surprising part was that uh, we finally drew a line and took such a, an important step because there are members of the alliance in the West, be candid, uh, primarily Germany, France, uh, and a couple of others that are always tapping the brakes like, oh, you know, we've got to maintain yeah. dialogue and, and that sort of thing. And, of course, um, it's, it has not worked, uh, that particular um, talk-only sort of approach because I think the Russians only respect strength. Now, an yep. important point of clarification, Russia, of course, is not a member of NATO. Uh, the reason they have a delegation at NATO headquarters in Brussels is a longstanding structure called the NATO-Russia Council. And uh, this was to maintain uh, yet another means of dialogue so that um, transparency, uh, you could mm -hmm. uh, communicate. And so quite a privilege that um, the Russians had this uh, opportunity here to be at the headquarters in Brussels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, obviously, um, of course, as is usual, the Kremlin fairy tale was that, you know, the West is responsible for all the violations, the, the aggression. And so they uh, they pull their guys out. And so this kind of thing does happen occasionally where somebody gets expelled, then they'll, the other side will expel somebody. And, and eventually it'll it'll come back up. But um, I, I think it was important that the uh, the alliance uh, took a, a firm step here to send a clear message that this is not going to be tolerated. Yeah. Actually, speaking of fairy tales, you know, of what you were, you just brought a very uh, important point up and about the Kremlin, the same mindset. This is what uh, we're delving in right now. And, you know, in the Russian media every single day, uh, there's been a significant propaganda, a significant propaganda campaign by the Kremlin itself uh, to the Russian audiences of an imminent nuclear attack, which you've just, no, you mentioned it before, a uh, nuclear attack, let's say, on Russia by NATO, right? Um, as you said, is the, that's a fairy tale, right? That's, that's part of the whole fairy tale scenario. Now, does the Kremlin fear-mongering, okay, of imminent attacks by the West, is this to maintain their control at home? Yeah, I think this is a part of it. They they have to justify huge uh, defense expenditures, um, mm -hmm. both from mm -hmm. their uh, nuclear forces and all their military forces, but also a significant uh, investment in interior forces. What what we what they call national guard, which is not the same as like U.S. national guard, but I mean these are heavily armed, well equipped, uh, yeah. large for forces that are there to prevent a color revolution inside Russia. Mm. And so this uh, playing on the traditional sort of phobia that Russians have about invasion from outside, whether it's from the East or the West, um, this is why you would hear this narrative coming out of the Kremlin that uh, the West is going to launch a nuclear strike any day. Uh, NATO cannot be trusted. The West is encroaching. Uh, Ukraine would always yeah ukraine was always part of russia crimea was always russian mm -hmm. i mean this mm -hmm. this sort of narrative yeah. is out there and uh, they use that to justify what they do i believe to their own population yeah yeah 
In yeah, fact, uh, the the uh, rhetoric um, after the expulsions this month, I mean, has been incredible. Every day I'm reading like an insane new headline. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> we're back to Soviet <laughs> days because this is what they used to do under the in the Soviet Union. Constantly imminent attack. You would think, you know, nuclear weapon was falling any second. And yeah. of course, nothing ever fell. No one is interested yeah. in invading Russia, attacking Russia, or doing anything with Russia. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Well, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Yeah, it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online. The service is available for all clients worldwide. And you can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy. And financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Kremlinfile. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P. Special offer for our Kremlin File listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Kremlinfile. In the spring, we saw Russia was um, building up troops on Ukraine's border. And I mean, it caused enough alarm in Europe and U.S. Mm -hmm. Russia finally, you know, said, oh, we are going to pull back after denying that they were doing anything. Um, They left all their military equipment there, you know, took out like, I don't know, maybe 10,000 soldiers, which was still higher than during the invasion of Crimea and, you know, rotated them around. That's it. Then come summer. We see now it felt like phase two, a propaganda war and disinformation where Putin comes out and writes, you know, uh, a thing in Ukrainian that Ukrainians and Russians are one people. Mm -hmm. Some Duma members in Russia made very provocative statements that um, the only way to help Ukraine is by hanging their politicians off lampposts. And it just was, I mean, it was, uh, you know, the the rhetoric was ridiculous. Then at the same time, we see Lukashenko, who obviously is operating on, well, at least my thoughts, operating on behalf of Putin, beginning to weaponize migrants and move migrants in. It is an abuse of some of the world's most vulnerable people. Migrants turned into weapons in a political battle. Tonight, there's desperation near the border of Belarus. Migrants, many of them from the Middle East and Africa, armed with shovels and wire cutters, are trying to break through the barbed wire barrier and enter neighboring Poland. Now we see everything coming together. Russia, again, is building up troops on Ukraine's border. We see them stirring crap in the Balkans and like, you know, to a point that a few weekends kept me up at night watching, you know, how that's unfolding. Mm -hmm. And we see um, last night, like 1 a.m. our time, my time, New York time, um, they release an article that uh, U.S. is preparing a special operation in uh, Donbass, which is a complete lie. Um, 
So what do you think? Do you think this is part of a broader strategy? And at the same time, they're holding Europe hostage with the energy crisis that they are creating. Do you think this is part of a broader strategy? And where are they going with this? Well, like what, well, what are they preparing yeah. for Ukraine? What are they preparing in general? Uh, Olga, I have to congratulate you. I, I think you have nailed it. Um, I think all of these things are, in fact, connected. Um, the The notion that somehow the big, quote, exercise that they did back in the spring, which is what mm. it was referred to by Minister Shoigu as an exercise, and, then mm-hmm. put, and now we're going to bring all the troops home. Absolute, total false. Uh, yeah. Most of the troops and everything stayed where they were. The, and moving troops is easy. It's the heavy equipment, yeah. the logistics. That takes time. That all stayed there. Plus, the Black Sea Fleet stayed in place in addition to the ships, the vessels that came from the Caspian Sea. So there's a lot of capability there. Uh, and so then, and you use the correct word, phase. This this is just another phase, um, and it's the mix of force, disinformation, energy, um, and, and then, of course, the latest phase, if you will, the use of these uh, poor uh, migrants uh, that are being yeah. brought in from uh, multiple countries into Minsk uh, and then pushed towards the border. Uh, it's uh, one of the most disgusting things I've seen, horrific yeah. treatment. And, of course, yeah. it's only going to get worse as the weather gets worse. And, um, you know, I, I think the European Union has really got to do a lot more here to protect its members, Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia, uh, and put pressure not on Lukashenko, but on the Kremlin. Because the Kremlin mm-hmm. absolutely could stop this by midnight tonight if they wanted to, but they have no incentive to, they feel no pressure. This, I believe that this is a, serves as a distraction to keep us focused away from Ukraine. Uh, But also I've spoken with uh, uh, very senior uh, Latvians and and they told me that they saw uh, special forces from Belarus would be watching Mm -hmm. how fast Latvian border guards could respond, for example when you push migrants to different places, wow. what was the response time? And so wow. uh, now that doesn't mean that there's going to be an attack through Latvia. But what it does mean is that the other side is either doing this for distraction or they're doing it for reconnaissance or they're doing it for a variety of purposes, all of which are plausible because of the traditional total lack of transparency and honesty by the Kremlin. Nobody believes anything that they say. Uh, and so if they were genuinely serious about reducing tensions, then you would see the same sort of transparency that NATO forces and Western forces use in our exercises. I've had I've had Russian uh, observers, observers from Belarus and from other countries in our barracks, in our exercises here in, in, when I was commander in Germany. Uh, we have media crawling all over everything that we do by invitation. Uh, you don't get that on the other side. So that's why people are anxious about what's happening, because yeah. you, you're, yeah. there's no tradition of trust or transparency uh, from the Kremlin side. And I do believe this is all connected. It doesn't mean it's inevitable that there's going to be an attack, but the conditions are set. and um, you know, to, when I say there's no tradition of trust, I will I will caveat that by saying that the Kremlin, when they say they're going to do something, they usually do it. 
Yeah. And what do you see happening with Ukraine? Do you see them moving in and trying to take more of Ukraine? Well, number one, uh, if you accept my premise that the that the principal strategic objective for the Kremlin with regards to Ukraine is to present it to as a failed state to the West so that there's no appetite in the European Union to invite Ukraine right. in, that there's no appetite in NATO to invite Ukraine in, uh, and uh, to give the Germans and the French in particular, but also Brussels, an excuse not to um, hold the Kremlin accountable for everything that's going on. So having said all that, they don't need to do a lot more than they've done right now, than what they are doing. They already um, have created so much pressure on the government of President Zelensky. uh, And unfortunately, there are enough um, corrupt officials that are there that are willing to be influenced by money uh from mm. from russia that yeah. that this is a part of a problem and uh the women and men of ukrainian armed forces and the average ukrainian citizen deserves so much better than that yeah the, the the problem i think is that the united states has got to before we even talk about ukraine becoming a part of nato the united states has got to establish a strong normal bilateral relationship with Ukraine. I think today, if you go to anywhere in Washington, D.C., if you say Ukraine, people immediately think of Giuliani, uh, Hunter Biden's laptop, um, or Trump, um. or, or this kind of nonsense. And uh, instead of thinking about, you know, what a normalized bilateral relationship would look like with uh, economic investment, all the diplomatic things, yeah. the cultural exchanges, security agreements, uh, we're moving in that direction, but it's, it's not there yet. That's step one. Step two is a strategy for the greater Black Sea region. I mean, when you're talking about strategy, it, it, it can't be based on emotion. I love Ukraine. I love the culture. I've met thousands of wonderful people. But that's not the basis of a strategy. And, and you know, we tend to think of Ukraine almost as an island. But strategically, Ukraine is important because of where it sits on the map, which means you've got to have a strategy for the region that involves Romania, Georgia, Turkey, um, and, and investment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting um, back to Belarus. So I mentioned that Lukashenko in the summer, late summer, started um, weaponizing migrants, flying them over from Iraq. This has expanded and really, I mean, has escalated like it's escalating by the hour to very serious levels. And now these migrants, they are flying planes in from Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, uh, Turkey. Turkey. Yeah. And um, and sending the the migrants to Poland's and Lithuania's borders, causing both countries to uh, declare a state of emergency on the borders. Yesterday, well, there were a few concerning things. One, the propaganda again. Um, one was uh, there were reports that Belarus and Russia were reporting that Polish military were mm. shooting into Belarus, yeah. which. Judging from the video, it looked vice versa. We know that several migrants tried to breach the barbed wire fence last night. Uh, the details are still sketchy, but according to the Belarus's border guard, at least four people were injured in the incident after the Polish guards used force to fend off the attempt. 
Poland officials have commented on this. And we also know that the wounded were treated by the Belarusian side. They're not at the camp right now. So hopefully we'll bring you more details about that soon. The hmm. other there was a kid that they used where they blew smoke into okay. his eyes yeah. to make him cry and then turn him around to the camera and have him, you know, say that the Polish military used tear gas again. And that was being played all over Russian media and and of course in Belarus. And then at the third today, we saw this morning um uh, Russia flew two nuclear uh, capable bombers across Belarus to test air defense. Now, yesterday I saw a map of where they're sending the troops. I mean, where they're sending the migrants, like mm -hmm. along Poland's border. Yeah. And I mean, it's a very concerning location because, as you know, Russia doesn't just do anything randomly. And it's right where the Sawaki Gap is. Yeah. which, of course, they have the Kaliningrad enclave that they, a few years ago, were, you know, moving lots of military equipment in. Can you tell us how you see this developing and the importance of the Sawaki Gap? So, uh, first of all, I want to reiterate this, how terrible this disgusting uh, behavior horrible. is by Belarus to, uh, to use people like this that are coming yeah. from um, multiple countries in the Middle East, and they're being enabled by the countries you named, including, unfortunately, our ally, Turkey. Um, yes. So uh, the, the fact is they're taking thousands of people and then pushing them towards the border to uh, to create chaos there, to uh, uh, unsettle uh, or undermine the cohesion of the EU, the European Union's frontier. And uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, of course, are members of the European Union. So this is, a, in large part, a, a responsibility for the EU. Now, the, the EU has spoken up a lot in the last few days about how terrible this is, what Belarus is doing. Today, they're talking about potentially uh, putting sanctions on uh, the various airlines that are bringing migrants into Minsk. Uh, but that... These are all things that should be done, but they're missing the target. The target is the criminal. That's that's yep. where the EU needs to rediscover its backbone. Uh, but there's so much reluctance in Berlin and Paris and in Brussels to confront the Kremlin for a variety of reasons. Number one of them is gas. Uh, there's so much reluctance to, to confront the Kremlin. And so I don't anticipate this changing anytime soon. Uh, the European Union certainly should be doing everything it can to um, help its members protect its border uh, versus criticizing them for how they might be doing this right now. And for sure, it, it is total fake news um, about, you know, Polish troops are shooting into Belarus. That's ridiculous. There is so, yeah. many, mm -hmm. there is so yeah. much media there all along where this covering this yeah. thing. So, again, this kind of goes to where does... Russian disinformation, who's their principal target? And it's their own their own population to justify what's being done. I hope uh, I was so impressed with the women of Belarus. In fact, I advocated that the women of Belarus should get the Nobel Peace Prize for what they did <laughs> after the sham election there. I hope that yep. the same brave women will turn their energy and their courage uh, towards the Lukashenko regime again. Now, uh, to the other part of your question, 
the Sewaukee Corridor, and we call it a corridor instead of a gap uh, because a corridor, of course, is something you want to keep open. And this narrow bit of, of, of land that connects Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia back to the rest of NATO, it, and you're exactly right, Olga, it is, it is narrow between the Kaliningrad Oblast mm-hmm. uh, and Belarus. And so uh, there's one main highway there that can handle heavy traffic, and there's a smaller road, and then there's a railroad. I mean, that's it. And so that that um, corridor is what allows not only normal traffic to go back and forth, but if there were a crisis, if that were severed, mm. now you've got three NATO allies that are basically isolated by land from the Russian Federation and, and Belarusian forces. And so being able to, to, to demonstrate that we can protect that corridor and that we could respond quickly has always been an important part of uh, deterrence. Now, um, to me, it's it's not an it's not an accident exactly as you've highlighted that where they're pushing these uh, refugees is in the vicinity of the Suwaki Corridor because again, part of this I think is distraction, but also part of it is measuring responses, seeing what all um, is there. So this this is not something to uh, to trifle with. No, yeah, no, not at all, not at all. And and what do you like? You know, NATO and EU and uh, obviously U.S. are so reluctant to respond to Russia. I mean, we've seen cyber attacks, assassinations on foreign soil with chemical weapons economic capture, political capture. I mean, you name it, disinformation, division campaigns. And they're reluctant. Do you see a red line where, like, NATO and Europe and U.S. finally come together and say, you know what, enough is enough. We need a containment strategy. Well, I was actually encouraged uh, earlier this year after President Biden uh, took office. And on day one, he started talking about NATO the importance of allies, uh, and then uh, Secretary Austin, our defense secretary, uh, made it very clear that the U.S. was committed to the alliance, and we are, absolutely. Um, and then recently, Secretary Austin was in the Black Sea region. You know, he visited Georgia, Ukraine, and Romania. Very powerful, very compelling. Um, and when uh, President Biden had his first phone call with uh, President Putin, he said, sovereignty of Ukraine is a priority for the United States. Wow, that's that's a powerful <laughs> statement. I mean, that's yeah. a very clear, strong policy statement. However, since then, I haven't felt the same compelling uh, energy there. Uh, I thought after the, the the meeting that he had with President Putin back in June, I thought, okay, this is good. And and then you know we talked about cyber attacks. Um, but I haven't, you don't get the feeling that there's been a lot of follow through yet. And uh, now, of course, I, as a private citizen, I'm not going to have visibility on everything that's being done. And I was yeah, happy to right. see yesterday, two of these knuckleheads were rounded up. Uh, one of them had all their assets received. So there is thing. there are things being done. Yeah, there are things yeah. happening. But, but then you balance, you balance that with the uh, the decision to allow Nord Stream 2 to continue. I mean, oh. That was a, uh, I was dumbfounded. 
Yeah. And, and um, I think that the Congress is going to continue to try uh, and yeah. through uh, the Defense uh, Authorization Act. Yes. They have language that uh, will will make it difficult for Nord Stream 2 to continue. Here, I'm very disappointed in my German allies uh, for continuing mm-hmm. to do this. Most of the EU does not support it. It violates uh, EU regulation. And um, and already the Russians are using, they're doing what they said they wouldn't do, which is use gas as a, as a weapon. I mean, how yeah. ridiculous that anybody would think that they would not use it for leverage. Talk about fairy tales. So, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not doing a good job of answering the question um, because, you know, the ultimate red line, if you will, is the Article 5 mm. uh, okay. for the Washington Treaty when an armed attack on one. So I think the Russians will do everything they can to make sure that they stay below that threshold and continue the ambiguity um, that like, well, you know, little green men um uh, and actually, they're very unlikely to use no kidding force against the NATO member, unless it looks like we're distracted or uh, or this cohesion is starting to come about. So mm-hmm. this the constant okay. erosion of that cohesion is their principal operational objective. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot to take in. Well, it's, 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 it's very, very scary, you know, as a thought itself. I wanted to expand this a little bit because um, I read something that General Milley, you know, uh, there was, he, he said something that was very telling. And he said, the nature of warfare has changed, right, completely, because he testified not too long ago. I think it was last week, if I'm not mistaken. And he said that there was a fundamental shift so now warfare is much more based on robotics and artificial intelligence and also a variety of other you know, technologies. Uh, and he said where he used this expression, um, he said that we were going to be facing a tripolar war being the United States, Russia and China. I'd like to ask, what does that mean for NATO? Mm-hmm. What's the scenario in that situation? Um uh what a what a great question um so I think what General Milley was saying of course that the character of war what war looks like is is changing in the future the 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 uh effects of hypersonic weapons the effect of mm-hmm. quantum computing the effect of artificial intelligence and unmanned systems and, and autonomous systems these all change what war will look and feel like and especially the speed of it um, which will be very, very challenging for how quickly think we can be presented with situations faster than normal decision-making might allow. Um, the nature of war is constant. The nature of war is about uncertainty. It's about violence. It's about um, yeah. adversaries trying to uh, achieve a particular objective, and it's, and, and it's not a big math problem. I mean, it's... It is. There's a human dimension, even in future war. There's a human dimension to this, and a political dimension. Now, the the tripolar war that he's talking about, of course, and and I I do agree with my old friend. Um, the uh, I believe we're going to be in a kinetic conflict with China within five years. Uh, wow. Of course, I hope I'm I'm terribly wrong. I hope I'm completely wrong, but based on 
Um, what I hear coming out of Beijing, uh, the the language, uh, and, and also the uh, the rate of construction of new ships for mm. the Chinese Navy. I mean, they're the PLA Navy. They are they're move, they're building ships at a rate that's kind of like what we did in 1944 and 45. I mean, it was a wartime wow. production. And uh, now having lots of ships does not equal or guarantee success or that there's going to be a conflict, but this is not normal peacetime ship construction. Yeah. Uh, these, uh, the construction of these artificial islands and, and the claims that they're making in the South China Sea and the way that the Chinese use their fishing fleet as a paramilitary organization to occupy um, islands yeah. out in the, in the South China Sea to uh, strengthen their claims, this is all part of the process. Uh, and I think that, Ch- that the Chinese Communist Party leadership saw that the West did not do anything after they smashed Hong Kong. I mean, not even the UK really reacted very strongly. Yeah. And, um, and then when you look at the increasing number of uh, incursions by PLA aircraft uh, in the uh, aircraft uh, identification zone, air defense identification zone around Taiwan. Um, this is; these are not just exercises. This is uh, demonstrating capability, but also measuring response times and uh, and and also more distraction to retain the initiative and to test our will and our commitment. So, um, again, I, I hope I'm wrong, but. Because of this, to get to the the point of your question, what does this mean for NATO? This means that the alliance has got to be strong enough in Europe Hmm. without a strong American presence if we are committed in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, there's there's not a lot of U.S. land forces that are in Europe. I mean, we're talking about 35,000, 37,000 total and most of what's here is not what would be needed in the Indo-Pacific. But for sure, most of our Air Force, our Navy, our satellites, special forces, a lot of those kind of capabilities would be focused in the Indo-Pacific region. And I think there is cooperation between Moscow and Beijing. They're not allies. They, they don't like each other. Um, I think China is looking at Siberia and counting the days till they get it back. Uh, hmm. But... I could see a situation where the Kremlin might decide to take advantage of us being distracted. And then, of course, the fact that China controls so much transportation infrastructure in Europe yeah. is a real concern for me. Yeah. Well. Yeah. General Hodges, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you. And we'll be keeping an eye and we'll probably grab you back yeah, as things I think continue. So. Hopefully things will simmer down. Well, uh, thank, thanks for the, the privilege and uh, all your listeners are certainly well served uh, by what y'all do. I want to say for happy Thanksgiving. Hey, everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, KremlinFile.com. This is Season 1, Kremlin File, hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Amari. This is a Bunker Crew Media production with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant Disney, Ben, Brett, and Jordi Micellis of Midas Media with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camargo. 
Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, you two guys are amazing. I mean, really, uh, you've got a. I, I learned quite a bit tonight with some of the things, the questions you asked, and uh, their sources. I'm, I'm impressed. Oh, thank you.